0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, while we're fixing that, go ahead and grab your Bible, open to John chapter 20. Now every Sunday we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Uh, This is not new for us Christians. We gather on Sunday because the Lord was risen on the first day of the week, and that has been the tradition of saints down throughout the ages to gather on the first day of the week on Sunday to celebrate and to remember the Lord's sacrifice and his resurrection. But we take time out of our year, one particular Sunday out of the others, to mark this particular occasion as distinct from the rest. This coincides with the Passover as celebrated by the uh, by the Jews. And so we take this moment in this year at this time to distinctly and uniquely remember the resurrection of Jesus. And over the last several months, we've been leading up to this point in the narrative of the Gospel of John. And to the best of our own ability, by God's grace, we've landed here in chapter 20 on Easter Sunday on the narrative of the resurrection of Jesus. Over the last several weeks, we saw Jesus' arrest and his willingness to go into the hands of men sentenced to death by those who sought to ruin and destroy his life given over to Pontius Pilate by the Jews, sentenced to death by Pontius himself, led to the cross, suffered there, died. And last week we saw he was laid in the tomb by Joseph and Nicodemus. But of course, that was not the end of the story, else there would be no reason to hope. In John chapter 20, the story very much continues, and it's important for you and I to remember that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are absolutely part of the same story. They are not separate or to be treated independently. So even though we spend time this morning on chapter 20, which is about the resurrection particularly, it is not to be thought of independently than the death of Jesus that we studied the last two weeks. This is the final answer of the work of Jesus. When he cried on the cross, it is finished, he did not mean he was no longer involved in the Father's plan, but that his work of sacrificial giving of Himself was finished, but there was still much more to be done. And so, God raises Him again on the third day to show that the work Christ had done on the cross was indeed sufficient for the forgiveness and atonement of your sins and mine. Of course, we celebrate the resurrection not because in the resurrection we're affirmed as Christians, that we somehow feel better about ourselves, that Jesus died and rose again for us. That we somehow are better or more superior than others because Jesus has risen from the dead and we as Christians get to experience and participate in that glorious resurrection. Now we don't celebrate the resurrection because in it we are affirmed, but rather because by it we are transformed. We're thinking this morning about the transformative work and power of the resurrection. Not what it means for us as Christians in our affirmation, but what it signals to us as Christians about our transformation. From strangers and aliens, as Paul would put it in Ephesians 2, separated from God, to strangers, from strangers and aliens, to one with God, united with Him in Christ our Lord. That's how we're transformed. And the resurrection puts that transformative work on full display. In the death and the life of Christ, we see the transformative power and grace of God's work in our own life, from death to life. So let's turn our attention to John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read to the end. When I'm finished reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you're welcome to join me and giving thanks to God by responding, thanks be to God. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. In his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you pray with me. Father, we give thanks to you for your word, which has captured the greatest miracle in the history of man. That Christ, who was crucified for our sins and was laid in a tomb, would be risen from the dead that he would stand before his disciples and declare peace. Help us, Lord, in our efforts this morning to dwell on and meditate on your word and to give attention to our Lord's resurrection. We ask God that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to the leading of your Spirit, so that we might walk in the light of the truth proclaimed therein. And we our hearts may be filled with gladness for the grace that is extended to us on the cross and the power manifested to us in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We give these things now to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first day of the week, Mary and perhaps others are on their way, this is early while it is still dark, to the tomb, presumably to wash Jesus' body, to care for Jesus. Of course, when she arrived there, the stone which had been rolled over the tomb to block any who had come to it is seen to be rolled away. Mary does not know why or what has happened. In fact, we understand she assumes that somebody has stolen Jesus' body. Grave robbing was common enough where that was the first assumption she made. The Jews, even in other Gospels, accused the disciples of having stolen Jesus' body so that they could make up this fanciful story about his resurrection. But no one stole Jesus' body As Mary approaches the tomb and sees that it is empty, she runs to Peter and to John, the beloved disciple, and tells him that the body is gone, still at this point believing somebody has taken it, stolen it, or placed it somewhere else, perhaps because this grave was not his and he needed his own. John and Peter run, even race to the tomb. John gets there first and looks inside without going in, and he sees the linen cloths that were on top of Jesus, in which he was wrapped there on the tomb. But there is no body. Peter, of course, rushes in. He doesn't wait to look. He jumps inside of the cave, and he sees not only the linen cloths, but the face cloth of Jesus folded neatly in its own place. John comes in behind Peter, and he tells us, that he believed. He saw and he believed. Apparently, it was enough for John not that grave robbers had come and folded neatly the linen, but that Christ's body was not there and his linens were laid neatly. That John began to believe. But we're told in verse 9 that neither of them really fully understood what the scriptures were teaching about this moment, this event in its fullness and in its perfection, that Jesus would rise from the dead. So they went back to their homes, presumably to think and ponder. In fact, the other Gospels tell us that Peter did not fully understand, and he pondered these things. But Mary was there. Perhaps she came back after, having not been able to outrun Peter and John, and she comes. And now she's weeping over the absence of Jesus' body. No one is sure where his body is. John believes perhaps he's risen from the dead, but has not yet seen him. Peter is not sure. Is his body stolen or is he risen from the dead? Mary, she weeps outside his tomb in verse 11. And she works up the courage to peek in now. And she sees, we're told, two angels sitting there. And they ask why she's weeping. And she tells them that they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. And then suddenly she becomes aware of another presence in the garden, and she turns around and there's Jesus. But she's unable to recognize him, much like the couple walking on the road to Eumaeus was unable or prevented from recognizing Jesus then. Assuming that he's the gardener, he asks, why are you weeping? And whom do you seek? She says, they've taken away Jesus, his body. If you've taken him or know where they've taken him, let me know so I can... I can take care of him. Jesus responds only with one word, her name, Mary. And at this, she immediately recognizes the voice and probably more so, the love with which Jesus had said this word. And she knows immediately that this is Jesus. Not dead, but alive and standing in front of her. And she drops to her feet, perhaps clinging to Jesus's, and he says, sir, don't cling to me, go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending my father and their father to my God and their God, and he sends her to go to the disciples, and she tells them, the ten gathered in the room, that Jesus is risen, he's no longer dead but alive, I've seen him, and all the things that Jesus had told her to say. They did not believe her. They, Assume she's hysterical, the other Gospels tell us. But later that evening, verse 19, Jesus comes to them himself. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, still that same evening, the doors were locked and they were in their own room. They were afraid of the Jews and what they might do, finding out that they are part of this band of blasphemers, for which they put Jesus to death. Jesus came in and stood among them, without opening or unlocking the door. Appears among them in person. Peace be with you, he says. And he shows them his scars. Shows them his hands and his side. And they see the disciple, they see him, and they say they are glad. They rejoice that what Mary has told them is true. And he commissions them, and he breathes on them, and gives them the Spirit. Of course, Thomas is not with them. In fact, it's probably just the ten. Thomas having been absent and Judas, of course, having been dismissed. They tell Thomas that Jesus is alive again. They've seen him. And Thomas, being sensible, says, I don't think so. Unless I see him and can touch his scars and I can put my hand in his side, he says, I will never believe Eight days later, that is the next Sunday, they're back in the room. Thomas is with them again, perhaps others, and the door again is locked. Jesus appears to them a second time, and he says, Peace be with you. And he turns his attention to Thomas, having known what Thomas says, and he says, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. And he commands them not disbelieve but believe and Thomas of course confesses my Lord and my God Jesus affirms this but says blessed are those who have not seen and will yet believe John says all of this the sign, the resurrection Jesus' appearance all the things that Jesus did have been written down so that when reading and listening, you may believe, just as the disciples did, that Jesus is the Son of God who has been risen from the dead, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. So the tomb is empty, and Jesus appears first to Mary, then to the ten, and then ultimately to Thomas, and he'll go on to make appearances to the disciples and to the multitudes, showing and confirming Proving and demonstrating the power of God. The angels at the tomb demonstrate not that Jesus was acting on his own, but God himself was at work in Jesus' resurrection. That this was a place where God had done what he had promised and said he would do. And though Jesus was not in the tomb, his angels were there to signify God's acceptance and approval and involvement in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So the purpose of John's entire gospel and the purpose of the resurrection itself is so that, as John says, you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God who is the living, resurrected Lord. Of all the signs and of all the miracles recorded in the gospel of John, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the glorification of Jesus, exaltation of Jesus over the grave is the greatest sign, is the clearest sign in all of the gospel. It's the clear evidence of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. It is evidence that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he says in verse 30. That's the miracle. That's the sign. All of the other acts and the wonders Jesus performed while in person is to lead up to this great sign, the glory of Christ who has been risen from the dead. And so the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus will now demonstrate the the character of the kingdom of God that the disciples are to personally embody And their work to establish. He commissions them, breathes Tells them to receive the Spirit and to go about the work of the church, she says in verse 23, forgiving the sins of any and withholding forgiveness. This is language about the mission of the church. It's the kingdom representatives of God. So these post-resurrection appearances are going to demonstrate the kind of character the kingdom of God will have, the kind of character that these Christians should embody and the ones that they'll work to establish on earth. There are three aspects of the resurrection that we'll explore this morning in light of this greater purpose of the miracle and the sign of Christ's resurrection that demonstrate the fullness of his deity and divine sonship. Three aspects of the resurrection. They are first, the grace of the resurrection. Secondly, the gift of the resurrection. And lastly, the goal of the resurrection. We'll explore the grace, the gift, and the goal of the resurrection from these 31 verses. First, the grace of the resurrection. When I say grace, I do not mean simple bestowing of favor. I mean transformative grace. The kind of love and mercy and unmerited favor that transforms the recipient of that work. Transformative grace is the kind of grace that those, when they meet Jesus, are changed and altered. We saw this example in its infancy just last week as we considered Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who saw Jesus on the cross and were beginning to be transformed. They began to believe in the Lordship of Jesus over all things they began to be changed and altered their minds and their hearts and their affections for Christ. It moved them to love and serve Jesus even in his death. Now the grace that comes to Mary and to the disciples, to Thomas and to you and I, is the kind of transformative grace that does not leave us unchanged, but renews us, indeed transforms us, changes us from being far off strangers and aliens, foreigners, cut off from the covenant promises of God and brought into that household of our Lord to be one with God in Christ. Transformative grace means that all those who come to know Jesus as the risen Lord are changed by that truth. It is grace which transforms us. And notice that Jesus does not come to the ready, to the cleaned up, to those who have gotten their lives together, but he appears and he comes to those who are grieving, to those who are fearful, to those who are doubting. He does not come to any disciples who have confidence that Jesus is Lord, that he will rise again. There are no such disciples as of yet. He comes to His disciples in their brokenness. They are not ready nor cleaned, but they are grieving and fearful and doubting. Consider the the picture here of Mary weeping and sobbing over the absence of the body of Christ, already broken and torn by His death, in whom she had put all the hope of her world and all of the world, her Savior, who has died. So she comes with grief and great sorrow to do the work of great honor and respect to clean and care for Jesus' dead body. And her grief is then compounded when she arrives and his body is gone, perhaps stolen or moved, and she does not know where it goes. But when Jesus comes to her, her grief melts away into joy, overwhelming joy, uncontainable joy. She throws herself at his feet to the point where he says, do not cling to me. This is not grief, but great joy. And this joy comes from the knowledge of knowing Christ. Notice the word that Jesus speaks to her, which changes her grief, transforms her grief to joy. It is simply her name. What's in a name? We're taught. When Jesus says the word Mary, so much more than what she is called is communicated. She immediately recognizes that this is Christ, whom she has served and loved for perhaps these many years while he was in ministry. And now he's alive and stands before her. And as he communicates her name, so much more enters into her heart. Grief melts away and gives way to joy. It is the knowledge of Christ, His knowing her, who she is, His knowing her grief and her sorrow because He Himself has borne them on the cross. She is known by Christ and she immediately becomes aware of that as He speaks her name. Imagine coming to the graveside of a loved one, of one you have given the last several years of your life to serve, to listen, to to communicate, to sit at and be with. And the grave is empty. Someone has ruined it, and your hope is dashed. And yet you're comforted by words that speak knowledge and intimacy. As she throws herself on Jesus, he says to her, do not cling to me. Now this isn't a rebuke or a prohibition to love and serve him. In fact, it is an appropriate response. The risen Lord is there. Give yourself to him. Throw yourself at his feet. But his response, of course, is a gentle reminder that she will not lose him again. Overcome with thankfulness and joy that Jesus is alive, ever ha- having just entertained the idea that his body might have been stolen or taken away somewhere else. She sees him there, not only his body, but alive. She clings to him. Those who have had children wander away from them, even for a few moments, to spot them later, grab their children, and hold them tight. Not because They've missed them, but because they're so thankful to have them back and they would never want to leave them out of their sight again. Jesus says, though, do not cling to me as a reminder that you will never lose me again. Because I'm alive, I will never be dead. Even as he ascends to the Father's side, there is a permanency of Christ's presence with his people now. As we see in the next several verses, as he tells them to receive the Spirit. But here he comforts Mary in her grief. And she transforms from one who is grieving and sorrowful to one who is full of hope and joy and gladness and overwhelming thanksgiving at the life of her Savior who stands in front. Now to be sure, friends, the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus will not guarantee us Safety from grief. It doesn't insulate us from the trials and the difficulties of our life. It doesn't mean we will never grieve again. But it does promise that even in our grief, we are enabled to do so with hope. In fact, in some sense, we can even overcome our grief and our struggles, our doubts, our insecurities, our distresses, whatever, wherever, and however we may come to face them. Whatever those difficulties may be, we are not by the gospel or by the resurrection insulated by them. But here we know that we can be comforted by the resurrection in our doubt, in our grief, and in our sorrowfulness. Jesus speaks to Mary a single word of intimate love, and her grief melts away into joy. Grief is not the only emotion we see in the passage. We also see in the disciples' case, fear. They've gone into the room, perhaps the same upper room in which the Lord's Supper was taking place that earlier that week and they had locked the door because they were afraid it says of the Jews would come and seek and find those who were still associated with Jesus to put them away, perhaps even to put them to death. But the disciples here we see their fear is placed not only with joy like Mary's but also with peace. That Jesus comes to them and he says, peace be with you. This, friends, is why each week we gather and we welcome one another in the same words of peace that Jesus offers to his disciples. Peace be with you. Paul, the apostle, when he writes his letter, will also accompany peace with grace. This is why we see in the resurrection the grace of Jesus to appear to his disciples and offer Peace, peace be with you. And at this declaration of peace that comes from the resurrection of Jesus and His grace, the fear of the disciples is now replaced with peace. The word for peace, of course, is shalom. This is a much broader word than you and I typically use for peace. Shalom really connotes this idea of of unity, harmony, restoration, and fellowship with God and with the world. All things are as they should be, as God completes the picture, a woven fabric together in the world of perfect unity and peace. So Christ says upon His finished work and upon the resurrection of the dead, peace be with you. That is, reconciliation with God, harmony with the Father, oneness with one another, Jesus's Shalom here on Easter evening is the complement to the "It is finished" of the cross, for the peace of reconciliation and the life from God is now imparted. So Jesus meets not only Mary in her grief, but the disciples in their fear, and he calms and stills their fear with His peace in His presence. It is His peace which He imparts by His very presence and declaration of the reconciliation they receive through Him, demonstrated by the power of His very being that changes fear to great joy and peace. Now the fear is not immediately dissipated. We see just the very next week in verse 26 that they again would be locked in the same room, perhaps waiting Eagerly expecting for Jesus to return again. But they begin to see, again, there, that week and the next, that Jesus gives them peace, grief, fear, and of course, in Thomas's case, doubt. I don't think it's particularly fair that we've come to know Thomas as doubting Thomas, though here he does seem to refuse to believe unless he has empirical proof. Just consider the the declaration there in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Perhaps you're here and in your heart you've said something similar. Unless Jesus shows up in front of me or I hear audibly the voice of God or there is an undeniable proof I will never believe. Thomas's doubt is gone in an instant, isn't it? Jesus shows up in the room, again, like he had the previous week with the disciples, and he addresses Thomas directly, and he calls out on his very claim. And whether J- Jesus actually demands, whether Thomas actually puts his finger in the scars and in the side of Jesus, we're not told, perhaps it's not enough, or it's not needed. Thomas answers him in verse 28, upon seeing Jesus and upon hearing his voice, my Lord and my God. This isn't a phrase like we would say, oh my goodness, or my word. No, this is a confession of faith. My Lord and my God. It is not simply that Jesus is his teacher, his master, but is the Lord of all things and the God of that he has come to know and believe because Jesus stands before him. Thomas's doubt is gone in an instant, and now his heart is filled with belief. So the grace of the resurrection means that Jesus comes and meets his disciples in the midst of their condition, whatever it may be. In grief and in fear and in doubt, In whatever situation and condition you may find yourself in, Jesus comes in his resurrected form in glory to speak to you in this condition in the here and now. He doesn't require you to assent intellectually to the possibility of the resurrection. To entertain all of the evidences for the resurrection or for the Lordship of Jesus. He doesn't require you to study theology. He doesn't require you to study church history. He doesn't require you to go to Jerusalem and inspect the tomb. He comes to you in your fear, in your doubt, and in your grief. And he transforms you. That is the power and the grace of the resurrection. That he would come and meet us where we are. Friends, I want to commend to you, no matter where you are in doubt and fear and sorrow and turmoil and distress and in great suffering, know that Jesus comes to you and knows you even in the midst of that situation. If you are sorrowful, Jesus has borne sorrow and grief in his own body. If you are fearful, Jesus himself faced the cross. If you are doubting, Jesus himself looked to the Father in dependence on what he was asked and tasked to do. Jesus suffered. Jesus walked and was deserted. Jesus knows the suffering of man. And there is no suffering which Jesus has not known or is born for us. So the grace of the resurrection is that he's alive and meets you and I in the very same condition we find ourselves in this morning. Secondly, let's consider the gift of the resurrection. If the grace of the resurrection is that of transformative grace, where those who come to meet Jesus, or rather are met by Jesus, are changed, we see in the resurrection a great gift given to those who come to believe and affirm his resurrection. As he meets the disciples, he gives them the spirit. The transformation which he he says comes at his presence and his resurrection, brings the hearts and the lives of those who come to see him and believe in him into conformity with the realities of the resurrection itself. Notice what he says to Mary in verse 17. He says, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. And then as he meets with the disciples, he says again in verse 22, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes and he gifts them blessings that conform to the reality of the resurrection. Not only is Christ risen from the dead, but not those who come to be transformed by the grace of the resurrection receive the gift and the blessing that he bestows on them reality of Christ's resurrection means that there are gifts given to those who believe and affirm that Jesus is Lord risen from the dead. Notice what these gifts are. First, he says brothers. Now he's called them brothers before. He says earlier in the Gospel of Mark, who are my brothers? Who is my family? He turns to his disciples and affirm that this is my family and these are my brothers. But in a new and perhaps tr- elevated way, he speaks about the disciples To whom Mary is to go as his brothers. That is, we, in the power of Christ's resurrection, receive the gifts of having Christ as our brother. We are brothers and sisters with Christ in glory. That is a unique and privileged blessing. Christ as our brother means that we receive all the benefits of knowing and being known by Christ. He is not a far-off, distant ruler or master. He is not a God that is distinct from us, but actually is one of us, has become like us. He has suffered for us, and in his resurrection, he still identifies with us. Brothers. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 11, speaks of the death of Jesus for his brothers. Brothers. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, commends the death of Jesus for the salvation of brothers. This generic term for brothers, of course, includes siblings, brothers and sisters. And so one of the great gifts of the resurrection is that you and I, in a spiritual sense, are family with Christ. Brothers and sisters with the risen Lord. He looks to us not as an unequal, but as co-heirs as brothers, as sisters. Though, of course, he is the firstborn of all creation, Colossians will tell us, it does not mean that he has been removed from our likeness, and yet we're told he is very much ours. Not only do we see that Jesus is our brother, we again see in verse 17 that we have God as our Father. Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now He's making clearer than ever that the work that He has done on the cross and the power displayed in the resurrection not only transforms them with grace, but actually gifts them with spiritual blessing and adoption into the family of Christ, where He is their brother and the Father is their God. His Father is our Father. His God is our God. Remember in chapter 1 of this same gospel, verse 12, John would say that to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the the beautiful power of knowing Christ in his resurrection. To be adopted as sons and daughters of the Lord. Brothers and sisters with Christ, children of the Father. We have become children of God. If we have believed in His name. Then later in verse 22 and 23, we see that He gives the Spirit. He declares and commissions them with the Spirit. Receive the Spirit, He says. So not only are we brothers with Christ and sons of the Father, but now we are recipients of the Spirit. Notice that in the power of the resurrection, we've come face to face with all three members of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And as Jesus commends the Spirit to his disciples, we are reminded of Romans chapter 8 that Paul would later write, when he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We've become spiritual now, he says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Notice the language of adoption and belonging to God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Notice the disciples were in the room for fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what happens here in this triune offering of Father, Son, and Spirit coming to know and give us His presence and the gift of the resurrection means that we receive the Spirit because of the risen Christ. Now Pentecost is coming. So this is very much a picture of what is to come when the Spirit is poured out on the the disciples at that time. But He commissions them, as it were, to receive the Spirit that is to come as they live in faithfulness to God Not as strangers, but as sons, adopted by God. So the beautiful gift of the resurrection is this, that because of Christ's rising from the dead, you and I are adopted into the family and the household of God. You and I can experience the intimate knowledge of having God as our Father and Christ as our brother and the Spirit dwelling within us to lead us and to guide us and to give us the very spirit of adoption in which we may cry, Abba, Father. Being adopted means that we look to Christ as our brother and to God as our Father, not as a distant, impersonal God, but as one who has been made known to us in Christ. The grace of the resurrection is that Christ will meet us in power, whatever our conditions may be, and the gift of the resurrection is that in that transformative work and grace, we receive the sonship of the 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 brotherhood of the Son and the sonship of the Father and the recipients, we have become recipients of the Spirit. But lastly, let's consider the goal of the resurrection. In verses 30 through 31, John again records, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, but not are not written in this book, but these are written, these being all of the other signs that have come before, and primarily the death and resurrection of Jesus, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There are two goals of the resurrection then John intends for us to see. First, and chiefly, the first goal of of the resurrection is belief. These are written. Attention is being paid to the resurrection so that you may Believe. Consider the sign of the resurrection and believe. Now, you may have an objection here that it is unfair that those who get to see Jesus have it the easiest. If Jesus came into this room today, I dare say you and I might believe that he is real and has risen from the dead. But to my knowledge, since Christ has ascended, he has not again descended and made himself visibly present with his people. And yet countless generations, millennia of Christians, have believed in Christ despite not seeing him. This is why he says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Yes, we believe, not by sight, but by faith. And what is faith without sight? Well, we see from Thomas's example in the exhortation to Thomas that Jesus says that blessed are those who cannot share in Thomas's experience of his sight, but who, in part because they read Thomas's experience, will come to share in Thomas' faith. Thomas' faith is not diminished because he had Jesus to look and to touch, And our faith is not diminished because we don't. But it is the reality of the resurrection which forms the substance of our faith, not the physical presence of Jesus. Now thankfully for the disciples' sake, Jesus was there so that the foundation of the church would be laid on their teaching and their confident assertion and proclamation of the gospel that they would go to the cross proclaiming. But for our sake, we stand on that foundation and dare I say, need not the physical presence of Jesus to convince us of the reality of the resurrection, but simply faith. We look upon the words and the work of Jesus and the words and the work of the disciples who have come to believe and who have seen, and we believe by faith. And we experience the very same confession and truth that Thomas did. And blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Again, Romans... Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, faith faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the kind of faith that Thomas here confesses is not primarily rooted in his sight, but rooted in Christ's resurrection. It's rooted in Christ the word, and our faith today must be rooted in the very same word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which means we are not saved by what we see. We are saved by what we believe. So the first goal of the resurrection is belief. Secondly, upon believing that we may have life in his name. We first must believe, and then in believing we would have life in his name. What does this mean? I think in two places, or in two senses, we have life in His name. First, in this life, or in the here and now, we have real and abundant life in Christ, in this life. Because we have been transformed by the grace of the resurrection, and we have received the gift of the resurrection, both of Christ's death and His resurrection, transformed by the grace and gift of Christ's death and resurrection, we can come to experience life in the here and now. The Spirit guides us, leads us, teaches us, comforts us, all of the transformative work that the disciples experience in the presence of Jesus after his resurrection, you and I can experience in the presence of Christ's Spirit today. And so your sorrow may be turned to joy, your grief, and to rejoicing, your trouble, doubt, into firm conviction and belief, your fear, and to peace, and to comfort, all of this can and is experienced for those who follow Christ in the here and now. And that is real and genuine abundant life that you may have in his name, in this life. But the second sense in which he says you are to have life in his name is not only in this life, but also in the one to come. This is the great unending life that is promised to all those who come to know Christ as the risen Lord and Savior. Christ's second coming will usher in the kingdom of God in its full consummation. And not only this, but with it will come our own resurrection. Physical, being raised with Christ, not in a spiritual sense as pictured in our own baptisms, but really with Christ, raised from the dead and living with Him in eternity. In the life to come, we would have eternal life, It said. The perfection of grace fully in this life to come. Complete joy, unending peace, faith. Indeed, not simply by believing, but faith with sight. As Paul would say to the Corinthians, now we see in a mirror dimly, but soon we will see face to face when the perfect comes. This is looking forward, not simply the life we have now in His name, but the life that is to come where we see Christ face to face. Indeed, we can then with Thomas celebrate knowing Christ face to face. So we've seen the grace of the resurrection and His coming to us and meeting us in whatever condition we are in. The gift of the resurrection and providing for us adoption as sons and daughters of the Father, having Christ as our brother and the receiving of the Spirit as our guide and helper. And the goal of the resurrection to lead us to believe in Christ as a risen Lord and their believing, have life in his name. One final question then by means of exhortation. It's the question I take from Jesus. As he approaches Mary in the garden, he says, Whom do you seek? Or who are you seeking? To Mary, this was a simple question the gardener was asking to a weeping woman. But upon further reflection, we see much more in this simple question, just as there was much more in Jesus' pronouncement of her name. The question for you and for I this morning is, Who do you seek? And who are you seeking? Do not put off answering this question, but answer it now in your seat where you stand. Whom do you seek? For those who now are in unbelief, who would not consider themselves Christian. What have you sought or whom have you sought as you turn your focus away from Christ? Whom have you sought as you esteemed Christ as lowly as a gardener as you turned your attention to all others? Whom are you seeking? Another way to ask the question is, for whom are you living? For yourself? For your work? For another Jesus' question to you is the same question to Mary in the garden. Who do you seek? But there is only one who stands before you now as the risen Lord. If you seek anyone else, you seek to your own destruction. If you seek anyone else or anything else, you will not find life. For those in unbelief, the question Jesus asks you as he asks Mary is whom do you seek? And why have you turned your attention and your hearts away? Look to Christ, who stands before you. He does not shield himself now as a gardener, but in full glory reveals himself to you in his word. And this morning, by the preaching, and proclamation of his gospel, he is the Son of God. For those who are engulfed in sorrow and fear and shame and guilt and in doubt, The question for you is the same. Whom or what are you seeking to help you quell those distresses and those distractions? Your fear and your sorrow is being quelled by one thing or another and you either run to Christ, you seek Christ for the care of your souls and the comfort of your heart or you turn your attention to others. Your sorrow is being drowned by alcohol your shame or your doubt mingled with your addictions. You've thrown yourself into your relationships or your work, to your social status, to your wealth. Whatever your current condition is, you must look first to Christ above all things. He is the one who can transform by His grace and the power of His resurrection, your doubts, your struggles, your sorrow, your fear, your shame. Who are you seeking? For those who are holding fast to the good confession, those who at one point or another have confessed Christ as their Lord and who are now holding fast to that confession like Thomas, Christ is our Lord and our God. You know whom you seek. And Christ knows that you have sought Him. Friends, but hold fast to that confession. Hold dear to that confession. Though Christ told Mary that that she could not cling to him, it is to the confession that he is our God and our Lord that we must hold fast to. Seek Christ continually. Your coming to him once is not enough. You must continue to come to him week in and week out, day in and day out, reminding yourself not only of the death that he died on your behalf, but the resurrection that shows to you the grace, the power, and the goodness of God for you. Seek Christ even now. Really, the truth is, though, even as we seek Christ, know, friends, that He is seeking us. He's seeking you. We first seek Christ because He has first sought us. We love Christ because He has first loved us. Friends, know that none of these individuals came to see Christ, but Christ met them. Mary in the garden as she wept was visited by the comforting Christ. The disciples in the room in fear were visited by the giving of peace of the resurrected Christ. Even Thomas, who doubted and was unsure about the work and the word that Jesus was really risen from the dead, was met by Jesus where he was. He seeks us, primarily. And so know and be comforted by this truth, that the one whom you should seek, seeks you. My invitation to you this morning, then, is the same of John's, that you would believe these truths. Christian or non-Christian, grab hold of these truths and believe them this morning as real. Cling to them. As you would cling to your parachute, as you fall from the sky, believe in them as you believe in anything else that is true. And in believing, friends, you may have life in His name. Here, in this life, and in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank you for the gift. We thank you for the goal of the resurrection, which leads us to believe. I pray for those hearts here now that do not believe, who are prevented to believe. Indeed, like Thomas have said, they would never believe because there's not enough proof. God, give them faith. Meet them, even though they refuse to meet you. And work such a work in their heart and in their minds which they would at once confess Christ as Lord. Do so in our own hearts, those of us who do confess Christ as Lord, that our doubts doubts and our sorrows would melt away into everlasting joy and life and help us to see all things in light of the reality of the resurrection, grateful for the truth and the good news that Christ is not dead, but is risen again. May we live... In light of that truth, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at Foundation foundationfxbg.com. Live from getting through, we do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. It's all creation groaning. a new creation coming.